you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you turn to John chapter 8 with me as we continue our journey together through the Gospel of John. If you're joining with us online today, welcome. And my understanding is, is that it is working, and I'm so sorry that it wasn't last week. I don't know if any of you were here. You may not have, have known that, but the sound, we had sound issues last week, and I, I don't think we've isolated exactly what happened yet, but we tested it all week, and it seems to be working now. And it's hard to fight against the technology when it just decides to, to go awry. And I find it extremely ironic that it happened on the Sunday. I preached the best sermon I've ever preached. I kid, but I think it's working today and we are, we are glad for that. You know, I, I, there's some truth in that. I want to, I want to be a great preacher, you know, for you guys, you deserve, deserve that. And, uh, we live in a world where so many sermons, and I love it because I get to hear a lot of sermons. Preachers don't get to hear a lot of good sermons. We're always trying to deliver them. And so we live in a world where there are sermons everywhere. You know, my, the greatest thing I'll tell you, I've probably told several of you, the greatest thing about living in 2022 is podcasts. I don't know if you know this, but it's just, uh, it's been great for about a decade now. We can get our hands on so much information. Information is no longer the problem. The synthesis of that information is anything is available to us and we can, we can learn from so much, but you know, sermons are not supposed to be, they're, they're not they're not supposed to be first for that platform, a podcast or a YouTube video. Sermons are for the local church. And what we are doing each week together, yes, I want it to be as, as great as it can be and point us all to Jesus in a way that, that spurs us along to do powerful things for the kingdom through the Holy Spirit that's inside of us. But that happens at the local church level. What we will discuss today is, I believe, what God has to say to you and to me in this time and place. And then we move on. And we continue the conversation throughout the week as a local church body and how we go to be Jesus's hands and feet in the community. And then we pick up the conversation again next week, next Sunday morning. We are having a conversation together. We've been talking a lot about conversations lately and the conversations that Jesus has been having with people. And he has another encounter this morning in John chapter 8 that uh, you are likely familiar with. If you're not, I'm excited for you to hear this story. It, it does tie in with Alex's story from our offertory moment where Jesus encounters an adulterous woman. So if you look with me, actually, at the, the last short verse in chapter 7, it's verse 53, and then we'll move into the first 11 verses of chapter 8. The text reads, then each one went to his house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he went to the temple again, and and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. 
So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that he might have that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. Then they persisted in questioning him and he stood up and he said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman Only he was left with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, woman, again, as we've seen in the last few stories we looked at, a term of endearment. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, Sin no more. May God add God's blessing to the reading of God's word. So the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of uh, Booths, of Shelters, uh, is just now ending where we find ourselves in the story in Judea. And the masses began traveling back to their respective homes. That was verse 53 from from chapter 7. But Jesus goes on, as he's accustomed to doing, as he often does, he goes on to the temple to teach. And his time at the temple, as we just saw, is interrupted by a group of people who would normally be at the temple, a group of religious leaders. And they come to Jesus, as the text tells us, wanting to to trap him. They put him in a pickle. If Jesus wants to let the woman go, who has been caught in adultery, in the act, he'll be accused of not abiding in Moses' law. Leviticus 20, verse 10, if a man commits adultery with a married woman, if he commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. Now, if Jesus agrees that the law should be, should be carried out, then they will no doubt immediately tweet, Jesus has no compassion in Stone's women. Because that's what church people do. They tweet. Now, I suspect these religious leaders assumed that Jesus would say, let her go. And so they anticipated, I believe, catching him, not upholding the law. Now, some of you may have noticed or already know this about this text, that um, there's parentheses around it. And that's because this particular text was not in many of the Greek manuscripts that existed uh, during the first couple hundred years of the church. And they didn't have this story in John's gospel. However, it was a circulating story, and it made it into the Latin, first Latin version that Jerome helped put together around the 4th century. 
In the Latin translation, which helped largely inspire the first King James version of the Bible, which many of our translations um, derive from, the CSB, which I'm reading from, the ESV, which I think is on the the screen accidentally this morning, but it's close. It's okay. Um, The translation you're using today likely has this story in it. And I love that this story is included. There's nothing about this story, I believe, that is inconsistent with who Jesus is and what Jesus has been doing. So John, including this encounter in his storytelling, it helps us, y'all, it helps us see legalism front and center. And if you've had any schooling in Sunday school through the years, you've likely encountered this story or or one like it, and you've had the, the teacher, or you've been the teacher, or you've been the group leader, the facilitator, we like to call them now, who has held up grace versus law, and you've, you've talked about the two. Jesus talked about the two. Early church leaders talked about the two. The law being insufficient For us to come to know Jesus, to be made right, righteousness, that key word. But Jesus and grace being wholly sufficient. You see, legalism is incompatible with love. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says this about God. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus who became wisdom from God for us, our our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption, in order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Righteousness, church, comes from grace alone, not law. If it came from abiding in God's law, well, we would all be in trouble. Now, there's something to be said for this story being placed where it is in chapter 8. You see, the first seven chapters, and this is why the encounters we dealt with over the first few weeks of being in John's gospel, we looked at the, the question that kind of bracketed each of those stories was the question, who is Jesus? Because the, the storyline so far has been an attempt for John to help identify just who Jesus is and how that was playing out in Galilee and all the places that Jesus was, was ministering, teaching Performing miracles. By the end of chapter 8, well, at the beginning of chapter 8, there, there, there's a story of the woman potentially being stoned. By the end of chapter 8, the religious leaders are trying to stone Jesus. You see, he was clearly upsetting the religious establishment. And the religious establishment needed to change its attitude. It needed a shift in its thinking. And and Jesus, of course, knew this. 
So he upsets them. And they ultimately begin plotting to kill him. And this, no doubt, foreshadows where if, if you've been in the church at all, around this time of year, you know we're looking toward Palm Sunday and toward Easter and toward retelling one another the stories around Jesus' final days that would lead him to the cross where ultimately the religious establishment does get to him in his last days on earth. And we're looking toward that. Lent began this week, church. The law is insufficient. Grace is not. But make no mistake, this story does not mean adultery does not matter. Some have proposed that's why this story is left out of several of the manuscripts, because a family's good name often hinged on the purity of its daughters. So to many patriarchs, to many religious leaders, this passage could be a bit scary, perhaps leading society to take sexual sin less seriously. Well, society does, folks, take sexual sin less seriously today. And we are not made, men and women alike, for multiple partners. We saw last week in our story where Jesus encounters the woman at the well. And by the way, I'm so grateful for Nola, um, our children's and preschool ministry worker who so beautifully uh, gave us the, uh, the monologue that she did and portrayed the woman at the well. But this woman that Jesus encountered at the well, the text teaches us, had five husbands and a current boyfriend. She had been passed around. The world may tell us that the, you know, such sharing of partners that is so rampant in the world today is the right kind of evolution for relationships. And I will no doubt sound like someone in saying this to some people who is out of touch by suggesting otherwise. But with two of my own children in the room, I unashamedly tell you this morning that God's desire for us is to enjoy intimacy. For it to be a wonderful byproduct of a lifelong commitment. For it to be derivative of a lifelong bonded relationship that mirrors Jesus's love for the church. Indeed, sex is not isolated or even something that helps lead to love and lazy, half-hearted commitment. It is a wonderful gift that comes through marriage. It is not that Jesus does not take sexual sin seriously. That could not be further from the truth. But again, our, our, our verse from 1 Corinthians that we looked at, God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. Jesus does not hold this woman's sin against her, but he does not excuse it. He forbids it. And meanwhile, he is exposing the greater sin in this passage, being the sin of her accusers. 
using God's law to make themselves appear righteous, bringing to mind the passages that uh, Jesus spoke of in other areas of the Gospels, where Jesus says, you, you, you're a cup that is ornate and beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you're dirty. Saying that to the religious leaders. Or, or you, religious leaders, you, you tie large millstones around people's necks, rendering them unable to even live and move around freely. Now listen, we don't know exactly what what Jesus wrote in the sand. It's a fascinating part of the story though, right? He stoops down and starts writing in the sand. I love reading what pastor and author Ken Bailey has to say about this passage. Bailey, brilliant pastor, um, and he, he, he immersed himself in his life and career in Middle Eastern, Middle, East, Middle Eastern culture and lived in the Middle East for years. And he believes, he's convinced he believes, that Jesus wrote, kill her or stone her with stones in the dirt, the sand. Such a response would carry out the law of Moses. And perhaps Jesus was playing with fire there, if that's truly what he wrote, or, or even in his response, even in his question to the group. I mean, there could have been some brazen individual there that took him up on it and started hurling the stones. But that did not happen. No one did. But then Jesus, who is brilliant, announces the method of execution. He says, whoever's without sin, you you throw the first stone. Cast the first stone. Go ahead. Because if everyone is allowed to stone her, y'all, nobody's responsible. I can just blend in with the crowd. Maybe I threw it. Maybe I didn't. They did. Jesus didn't say go. Go. Jesus said, let the one. And when he said, let the one, he puts a name and a face on everybody in that crowd. Which is, which is the point. Because Jesus is the only one that sees everybody in that crowd. Including the woman. We'll get back to that. And again, these religious leaders, they know the situation here. They're trying to trap Jesus. They've orchestrated this whole thing. If you look at the the scenario and how the law is written in Leviticus 20, both parties are supposed to be killed and stoned. They only bring the woman to the group. Where's the man? It's likely that the man involved in this situation was one of the religious leaders that, that participated in the whole trap in the first place. I can't prove that, but that makes sense. And then it's also possible that that person is right there in the crowd. Now think about this with me. Think about that person hearing Jesus say, let the one who's without sin. That would cause a recoil. He was just doing it. I would be ashamed. That's the point. Jesus is holding up just how important all of this is. 
These legalistic, legalistic religious leaders are, are making such a mess of this. They are taking so lightly the things that really matter. Jesus sees this woman and in his question and in his doodling seems to reveal to the accusers that they do not see her. And I believe that with all my heart. I think it's true of the encounter with the widow's might, the story you may know of in other areas in the gospel where the widow comes with all that she has and the religious leader is, is praying with all the fancy religious words that I'm sure I try to use all of when I preach. Has no clue that that woman is there because he doesn't see her. So, so let, me just, let me just make sure you understand the point here because I don't know what you've brought to worship today. I don't know who, what your story is. Every one of you, I know a lot of you. People sneak in here all the time. And if you don't get greeted, I'm so sorry. That should not happen. If you're not made to feel welcome, I'm so sorry. I don't think it happens a lot here. This is a loving church. I've been here three years now and I couldn't feel more love, but but we, 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 we mess up sometimes and we don't notice. Maybe you don't want to be noticed. But that gummit, Jesus notices you. He sees you. Whether you want to be seen or not. He sees you. And he knows you. And he loves you. Because we're all the same. Now, we're different, different skills, unique abilities. We come from different places. There is variety. There are different spiritual giftednesses amongst us. And praise God for that. But we are all the same. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, right? Oh, but he's the good shepherd. Jesus is calling attention here to what he was doing in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, you religious you, you fools, you see the plank in your neighbor's eye. The speck in your neighbor's eye. And you don't see the plank in your own. So these religious leaders walk away. They walk away. It's kind of amazing. Jesus got them. He ninja them. And he's left there with the woman. And Jesus, who already saw her, asks where they've gone. Has no one condemned you? No, Lord. Well, I don't condemn you either. Then he tells her to go be perfect. <laughs> Is that what he says? Is that what that means? Go sin no more. It sounds like I might be missing something there, but it's what it, it's, it's, it's what it says. Go, go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. How are y'all doing with that? Sometimes I accidentally sing, 
great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto thee. And that's hilarious because that's ridiculous. It's great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. We still mess up. Alex Joyce said it in her video so beautifully. She said, I'm a, I found out really quickly when I came to Christ. I don't know everything. I still messed up. We don't get it right, right away. And then in my worst moments, I have acted like we should. Even as a pastor. One who's supposed to get all this. And I hold you accountable in ways that you should never be held accountable because we still mess up. But it makes me feel better about me if I feel better than you. And so I comprehend go and sin no more is how we should be living. And then we mess up and we hide it. or We don't want people to really know what we're like. And stories like this happen. And they repeat themselves and we become the accusers. We just can't do that, folks. This has to be more. More like a hospital. If your testimony is still broken, if you're still right in the middle of sin, I pray that you would be received in a church like ours. That you don't have to have it all together before you can be a part Because what that has proven to to render is you never being able to be a part. And Jesus's point is, how would anybody ever have been able to be a part? Go and sin no more means go live and do so in obedience But as we've talked about so often, church, not in obedience in order to get Jesus to love you, that is already done. Obedient because he does. That's the difference. Go and sin no more. Go and help one another sin no more because that's better life. That's what God's best is for you. Not to be to use this example, chaste, because God will love you more if you are. That's what the church says too often. Be chaste as a derivative of who you are in Christ. And anything else that separates us from Jesus. Avoid that because that's not really living. If avoiding the sin makes you feel proud, makes me feel proud, we're missing the point. If avoiding the sin helps us more fully understand how much Jesus loves us and is in relationship with us and will be with us again tomorrow when we wake up again and go try to do it again, that is really living. And there's no more important distinction for us to make as a church family. Are we today with Christ? Do we here go and sin no more? And we're not afraid of that. We embrace it. I think she embraced it. Now, last thing. Let's assume that she heard Jesus. And she did or tried to do what he told her. And then let's assume that she has never been a part of a religious community. Never been a part of a small group 
that will love her and care for her and, and, and embrace her like Alex was embraced to help along a little further down the road. Where does she go? Go and sin no more. I have always focused on the sin no more. But where does she go? Well, that is what pursue is all about. The first church that Fred Craddock, I tell you about Fred Craddock all the time, um, served as pastor was a tiny rural church near Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And during his tenure there, the community exploded with uh, laborers brought in to work on the newly developed nuclear plants. The young pastor wanted to attract the workers to the church, but there was just one problem. The church didn't want them at all. And soon after, the state of Tennessee became home to the research and development of the, ca- of the country's first nuclear bomb. Craddock, Dr. Craddock began noticing recreational vehicles, trucks, wagons, tents, dotting the landscape. The people had come. And since his church was nearby, the young pastor naturally began thinking, we got to go meet these people. We got to get them in church. After services one Sunday, he called a meeting of the church's leadership and he presented the plans. He said, I, we got to get them. How are we going to get them? We got to go. We got to go meet them. The church said, I don't know. I, the committee, the, the, the committee, you know, the committee, you know, they said, I don't know. I don't think they fit in here. They were wranglers. I don't know what that meant. I don't think they'd fit in here. They're just here temporarily. They're just construction people. They'll be leaving pretty soon. And he tried to talk the church into it, but pretty quickly they decided to call a meeting and it was set for the next Sunday and the committee came together and they put together a resolution that literally, this is true, y'all. It said that you had to own property in the county in order to become a member of the church. Lord, never let us have that rule here. Oh my goodness, what is going on? And it passed overwhelmingly. Dr. Craddock didn't vote for it, but he was quickly told his vote didn't count. It was quickly seconded and passed. And Fred moved on from that church and he and Nettie went on to serve in other areas, but they were traveling through there years later. And the roads had gone up. I-40 had been built since then, but they wanted to find that church. He wanted to go see the land where he had pastored that church. And so he drove, he found it. It took a while, but he eventually found it and they pulled up and the church was still there, except there was a new sign in the church. It said, all you can eat barbecue, Tuesdays and Thursdays. And there were cars everywhere. The parking lot was packed. And I said, well, it's lunchtime. Might as well go in and eat. It was obviously pretty good. And so they went in and it was still, it still looked like church. The pews were still there. They were around the corners of the, the edges of the room and people were sitting in the pews waiting to get in the seats and the tables had, you know, the red and white checkered tablecloths and they were eating the barbecue, ribs, chicken, pork. They had it all. They had it all. This was a good restaurant and it was packed. And you know, it was a barbecue place in Tennessee. You know who was there? Everybody was there. Anybody was there. Fred turned to his wife and he said, man, it's a good thing this isn't a church anymore. None of these people would be allowed to be here.
my wife's name is Leslie Ann. She received a call this week from the person who will remain anonymous. Not in, not in our church, but somebody that we know whose daughter is going through hell and is, uh, is suffering from addiction and depression and doesn't yet know that anything's even wrong with her. And Leslie Ann was called because we do know this person and we grieve for this family. We didn't know this was going on, but she was called because she's a medical professional. And the family thought she might know somebody to connect their daughter with. And we did. And there could be a good, I hope there's a good ending to that story. But what I hope more than that is that any such situation moving forward in Nashville and throughout the rest of the world would be caught well before you call the random medical professional in your life who you think might have an answer for you. That we would be so attuned to the needs in our community that we would be so apt to to meet and encounter and pray with and talk with and build a relationship beginning from a conversation with anybody around us. That there would be no evidence of a neighborhood problem in and around Bellevue throughout Middle Tennessee. That we would pursue people in the way that Jesus did. And brokenness would be met quickly with Christ's love. That's what happened in this story. And John put it in here so that it would still happen today. I don't know who you know that needs to know this. Perhaps you're in here today and you need to know this. But I want you to know that it is this simple. It's not simple to to follow and be formed by Jesus. It does require everything. But it's simple to just say, I need help. I need you, Jesus. Would you bow with me? Lord, we do not want to suffer from the myth of being called to perfection any longer. And we do not want to heap that burden on anyone else. Lord, would you meet anyone in this room today, whatever their struggle is, whether they find themselves in the in the group of the religious leaders or whether they find themselves in the sandals of the woman. Could we know this morning that you are pursuing us, whoever we are? And would you draw us to your son, Jesus? Jesus.